you've not got the wrong podcast. This is the Colour Tour, and we are in Brisbane, Australia. I'm driving away from the podcast, which is amazing because normally I'm flying or it's a train. I'm driving. I'm driving home. It's about a 20-minute drive. I just spent a great three hours with colorist Kaylee Bateman and her shop in West End, Brisbane. She talked about all sorts of great things from uh, starting out a little girl from a country town to color grading a big Hollywood movie like Elvis. Then she talked about shooting her own music videos, so she had material that she could colour. She's now running her own boutique shop, she's employing staff, and also she's very keen on mentoring and wanted to really stress that that's something that's missing in our industry. So sit back, grab a cold drink and enjoy. Ready to have some fun? If you look inside, you can see every possible color. And um, I'm very pleased that I've only had to travel about 15 minutes for this podcast, which is is great when you've been traveling all around the world doing the others. And I'm in Brisbane, and I'm talking with colorist Kaylee Bateman. Hi, Warren. How are you? Oh, I'm very well, very well. We're in the middle of summer. We're in Brisbane, Australia, where I've lived for 22 years. Kelly, this is this is your this is your place. Let's start right up to date where you are here. So, just tell me whereabouts are we in the in the city of Brisbane, and how did you come to to get your place here? I'm currently on Montague Road in West End, and I'm in a boutique studio that I now own and operate. Um, it is a small space within a much larger studio, so I rent a small couple of rooms here. And I came to be here because last year when I was working on a rather large project, we had a rain event in Brisbane and I had set up my home suite in my basement and I was really happy with it. And I had so much more space than I had when I was living in an apartment or living with my in-laws. And then of course we got flooded. <laughs> so even though the water didn't come up from the river, it came in through the retaining wall and my carpet floated away and the walls were damaged and I just couldn't work in there anymore. So I was looking for somewhere to pop my gear while I got that fixed. And my partner's a sound engineer and he works out of a facility in West End. And I thought, oh, I wonder if I can just get, you know, half a room, a corner or something to put my gear in. And I did that and I thought, wow, it's nice to be out of the house. <laughs> It's nice to have somebody to go and have lunch with and, you know, other creatives who are working on films and other capacities to talk to. And I really just enjoyed that um, after, you know, I freelance around everywhere, but it's good to have a home base these days. And it can get a little bit lonely when you're working out of your basement or out of your garage, as so many people do. Um, so I just kind of fell for it. I thought, well, this is really nice. Let's see how it goes. Brisbane's not that big. It's about two and a half million people. It's probably the third third biggest city in Australia. Um, and so we're just a little bit away from there, but there's a bit of industry around here in this area. There always was, wasn't there? Yeah, that's right. It, it is a bit of a creative area. There's a few different hubs around Brisbane. There's uh, one around the valley and in New Farm, and then I'd say there's one around Woolloongabba, and there's one over here um, around West End. So, yeah, it's one of probably three places I think that it's easy for people to get to from their production companies or if they're doing other parts of the post process with other facilities or 
other smaller businesses. Um, it, it pays, I think, to be geographically close to at least some of your clients, yeah, just to make yeah. it easy for them. So what have you got terms in room? Can we have a look? Can we have a walk around and have a look? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, uh, let's go next door. So we're just in the main room. We're going to go next door. We've got adjoining doors here and I'll, I'll put some photos up. Yeah, so this is the second suite and it's running mostly the same kit as the, as the first suite. Um, it's got a slightly less expensive monitor, so I've got the ISO in here. Running with a MacBook Pro M1, which isn't the base model, but I can't remember what I got it spec'd up to, but it, it's lightning fast. It's so much better than Great. any of my previous iMacs. And, and I'm not totally sharp, but you've actually got a real person working here for yeah, you. Yeah. Yes, the uh, most important piece hello, of equipment that hello, I have. Hello then, how are you? <laughs> hello, I'm good, thank you. Excellent, excellent. I just needed to point out, you know, somebody here doing some work, which is good. That's correct, yeah, this is Emily. She's a junior colorist, but very, very close to having the junior taken off that title. Oh. Quite a, quite a skilled colourist and I'm very fortunate to have her as a full-time member of my team. How exciting. Yeah, she's, um, she's been a real find, quite a talent and definitely one to watch. Great, really good news, good news. So this is like your prep, smaller jobs, conform, are these the network together so you can yeah. handshake between both of them and everything? Absolutely, so they are both networked together and we both access uh, one large Pegasus for yeah. our rushes, but we can access any client drives that we plug in on the network as well, so we don't actually need to move the rushes if we don't want to. And we're working with uh, the Resolve Cloud currently, and we work quite collaborative most, most of the time. So Emily won't just conform, even though she does a beautiful job of that, she'll also do often a first pass, a balancing pass and matching. Um, if I've got clients in the suite, um, she'll often be sitting in here doing things like rotoing and masking, tracking handles and all right. kinds of things. So if, if we get a really tricky request where we have to really do some tricky shapes, she can spend an hour on that while we move forward in the other room. Interesting way of matching up framing. Yeah. I've seen that before. Yeah, it's difference mode. Yeah, difference mode. Good idea. Just yeah. makes it really easy to Very see easy, yeah. the difference between the two. Yeah, yeah, good tip. There's a good tip, folks. Different mode when you're trying to match your reference movie. We've walked into our main room. We're literally next door. Now, there's quite a, a wooden timber theme here. Was, yeah. this, was this what you inherited or have this you added is, that? This yeah. is what I inherited. So this is as it was put together. And it's a little bit like working on a set because everything is just thrown up panels of plywood and you can do anything. You, you know, I could paint it, I could add plaster, I can cut holes in it. I've got the carte blanche to go ahead and, and do what I please. So occasionally Emily and I will go a bit rogue with a drill and start mucking about and yeah. adding or removing things. We put those shelves in last weekend, which has been nice to have a little nook. Yeah, um, you've got a little, uh, little booze alcove down Yes, well. we do, yeah. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a throwback to the 90s. <laughs> got a mini fridge that we actually just moved out of the room, which is full of beers if wow. you like one. <laughs> I, like it. I like it. So let's go up to the to the Sharpie end where you've got your kit. What what kit are you running up here? Um, so up here I've got a Mac Studio back here, yeah. which is the main workhorse. And that's actually yeah. just one off the shelf from Apple because yes. I needed something in a rush and yeah. it's been a dream. And I've got my Pegasus Raid, yep. which is where I store most of the rushes and archives for old jobs. Um, I've got a couple of Lenovo GUI monitors here, one for scopes, one for the GUI, and then I've got my pride and joy, my Sony X310. Wow. 
Um, you sell your house to buy that. <laughs> just about. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I could have had an extra room on my house if I hadn't bought it. <laughs> um, and I'm running everything through a Blackmagic Ultra Studio hub. Um, I've got some pretty professional speakers here, which the sound guys lent me. Yes. Um, which is nice. And then I've got the G2 LG um, flat screen OLED for the client monitoring. Okay, and how do you find that match between that and your... Sony. It's pretty good. Um, it's not perfect. It's no, pretty good. None of them are. Yeah. I think before I do anything really serious, I'm going to get Stuart to come in and, mm. and give them all a bit of a yeah. line up to each other because yeah. Stuart calibrated the Sony. Yeah. Have you always been on Resolve or did you pick up the other tools or how, did, how has that come around? So I have always been on Resolve like mainly, um, I've graded, I think one short in Luster a million years ago and graded a short in Baselight for Avid also a million years ago. And I've had to dip into Baselight for, uh, well, Baselight editions for various different things a few times when I've been handed BLGs for various different mm -hmm. reasons. But um, I've always been on Resolve. That's what I learnt on. Um, that's the suites when I first started out were all Resolve suites in the facility that I worked. And that has been a pretty useful thing for me because when I decided to go freelance, I didn't really have a huge amount of savings behind me to invest in gear. And I knew that I needed something for a home suite to make that transition work. So fortunately, Blackmagic had just brought out the mini panels and the micro panels and, you know, Resolve was quite cost effective in terms of purchasing the software and yeah. the computers to run it weren't crazy. So, you know, if it had been a turnkey operation that I had to invest in at that point, I probably wouldn't have been able to continue with my career. Um, that being said, I am investing quite a lot of time and energy at the moment into getting up to speed on Baselight. And we just had the guys from Filmlight yeah. out in Brizzy. Yeah, it's great, wasn't it? It was really nice to see them, mm. um, those faces and voices that I'm used to from the internet videos. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, been a few, it's been a few years, so yeah. it's good to see them coming out and putting on some roadshows and things like that, getting back to normal. Yeah. So in this room, are you aiming this at all and anything, or are you specialise into some sort of niche, what you're thinking about where you're pitching yourself? So at the moment, the work that I do, and especially the work that I do out of here, I'd say is 50% long form, 50% short form. Right. So I do have a bit of a background in both. Um, I think predominantly there are, there are people who know me as a TVC colourist. Um, I do have a lot of experience in that area and probably only got into long form maybe seven years ago. So definitely the start of my career was fully focused on TVCs, but my focus moving forward for this suite is actually the long form market and even the remote long form market. So um, got a bit of a business plan together for that, but we'll see how it goes. I do love grading both. I don't think in today's day and age you have to choose as much as you maybe once did, um, but we'll see. Yeah, I don't think you can really choose, can you? I mean, you'd be a brave person to went no. I'm just going to stick with one and not take the other. That's right. That's the big change, as I see. Yeah. You look that's all right. around the world, people are dipping into, you know, they're dipping in long form and they're in short form and they're going backwards and forwards and they're, they're which they never used to do. That's right. And I think there's been a really good result um, out of that. Like I see a couple of colorists, especially in Sydney, who 
who have done beautiful things. I'm thinking of Fergus Rotherham and Matt Fares mm. in particular, who have had a TVC background and have brought that real precision and attention to detail to their long form. And I think are really creating quite stunning grades for Australian television that we, we haven't really seen grades like that on Australian TV for, I don't know, forever. They're beautiful. I don't know how long they get for those grades, but they look well, extremely detailed and, and gorgeous. That could be a bit of a thing, isn't it? Because we've had conversations about this before, and I know with the, the, the CSI ANZ chapter, we were discussing the amount of time that colorists get here, you know, working with budgets and things like that, mm. as opposed to the bigger prop, because everything's going to be compared to the bigger productions. Um, so that's one of the things that we were trying to do with the chapter was to talk to the streaming network, the Amazons, the Netflix, and try and get some sort of little standard going, well, this is how long you really should be spending a certain amount of hours in a day. You need prep time, development time, time to create lots and that sort of thing, which I think is a good thing that the, the ANZ chapter can do. So the call for local content in HDR, yeah. Yes, actually. Um, I wouldn't have said that until about six months ago. Um, there were lots of inquiries and, you know, oh, can you quote a HDR component, but then not necessarily going through with it. But um, I recently graded a four-part mini-series that was a HDR-first Dolby Vision workflow that was for ABC, which is quite unusual. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was fantastic. So more and more people are asking for that as standard, Yeah. which is great. Yeah. Are they giving you more money for it, though? That's the thing. Oh, well, in that case, I can't talk about it because it was through a different post facility. But <laughs> So I don't know what arrangements were made on the back end. But um, oh, look, when, whenever I've quoted it, it's, well, I don't know how much I should say. How candid should I be, Warren? <laughs> no, 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 please. Everyone's really keen. No one will say anything. Really? Yeah. Well, look. For me, because I'm using the HX310 anyway, I don't have an additional fee for HDR, but there is additional time required. Yes. So there, yes. it does end up costing more because you can't just do a HDR delivery. There has to be a trim pass yes. and you have to put some time aside to do that properly. There's Definitely. no point in just letting the algorithm work it out. You've yeah. got to factor in the time, not just to watch it, but also to trim it and not to be doing that at the speed of light. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, yeah. There's definitely going to be extra costs involved. Yeah, um, yeah. For the, for the client. I mean, okay, you've got the room set up, you build what you build for your room. But just in the artistic side of grading it and, you know, getting more time to come back the next day, the next day, look at it, tweaking that trim pass is important as well. Yeah, and I think having time to come back a second day is one of the best things for the quality of the work whether it's in HDR or not, but I think particularly in HDR, um, being able to go away and sleep on it and come back and sneak up on the work and surprise yourself and watch it as a viewer for those first five seconds and get that impression, yeah. which we don't get when our eyes have become used to it, no. to know whether or not we're hitting people over the head with it or if it's a nice, subtle, you know, lovely grade. Yeah, the, the one-day grade is, is, is tough going because you, if, it is. if you're talking about... You know, if you're talking about reality shows or doco shows that can up to like a thousand cuts or something in a TV one hour and you've they go, well, we've got an hour, you've really got to try and 
push for a two days or at least a day and a half on that to just review it, I think. Absolutely. I think otherwise what you could average it out and look at spending maybe five minutes per shot. That's like it can be done, but it, it's still going to be better than it was in the offline. But are you bringing out the best in it? I, I don't think there's any way you physically can. Um, yeah. it's, it's very disappointing when that happens. And the one-day grade is, is endemic in Australia for episodic work. Yeah. Um, I've, I've sat down to grade a one-day grade on, on an episodic show on a half hour and seen 700 shots in that and not shot reverse shot. Like it's factual, it's, you mm. know, the, the camera's everywhere. And I've graded, on the other hand, feature films with 500 shots and you've had 10 days. Yeah. And still you get to the 10th day and go, God, I wish I just had one more day. So <laughs> you can always use the time. It's funny as a colorist, you never, you always wish you had more time, don't you? Just always, one more day. You always think you could do a bit more and you probably always could. Yeah. <laughs> but at some stage you go, well, that's it, we're done. And then you go and look at it and you go, it's never as bad as you think, is it? I thought, I thought if you need something, go, oh, I need more time. I know. Go and see it and you go, I wasn't worried about it. It looks pretty good. That's right. That's right. Well, at least you can stand to watch it afterwards. I get the heebie-jeebies. I can never do it. <laughs> How did your colour journey begin? Oh, so my colour journey began, gosh, I'm, I'm feeling old right now. Um, I was in my mid-20s and I'm almost 40 now. So oh, okay. a while back, yeah. a while back. Um, and I was working as an assistant editor at Method Studios in Melbourne, which yes. at the time... The time that I started, it was actually called MERP, and I really wanted to get into colouring right from the word go. I'd been at film school and I'd had to shoot on 16mm, so I'd been taking my 16mm films down to complete post to get them colour graded by amazing people such as Dee McClelland and Vincent Taylor. They'd been, you know, without knowing it, grading my student films. They must have graded about 15 a day or something. They were really busy doing that, but... I remember going into those suites and going, oh, my goodness, like, this is a job? Wow. <laughs> and seeing all the technology. And, and in particular, I remember Dee thinking to myself, wow, this is great. A woman can run this spaceship. And it, and it was something for me to really look up to and to think perhaps one day if, I'd, if I'm lucky, you know, I can... So before you'd seen her in there, had you just sort of seen it as a male thing? I think so because the first couple of colorists that we had um, were were men, and Dee graded my honors movie, yeah. and she did such a beautiful job of it, and she made it into something that I couldn't imagine it being without her. She doesn't remember it; I've asked her, <laughs> but again, she'd probably done ten that day. Um, but I just remember how much she was able to bring the genre out, and my honors was all about genre, so. To see how that visually translated, um, it, it just upped the production value exponentially for me. And, yeah, I think I had seen it as a male profession but was really impressed with what she could do. Um, I've always been impressed with Dee, actually. Um, I've had the pleasure of assisting her later in my career on a film and she ran the room like no one else that I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah she's she's wonderful. You know, they're all of the all of the adults, all the grown-ups, as you'd call them, yeah. and she had them all, you know, working the way that she wanted to work. And you know, I think it can be difficult when you're in a in a, in a big grade to control a room and to not get sidetracked by, you know, fighting agendas or people's 
you know, wanting to people wanting to go down one track, but you know that you've got to get through a certain amount, or people are asking you to do things that you feel is beyond the scope of, of what you can do, and to explain that in a way that isn't well, I can't do that, you know. Oh, totally. You know what I'm trying to say oh, totally. in, in a way that's not self depreciating well, in any way. It's half the job, isn't it? Yeah. You're dealing with a lot of people, then that's probably half of it. Being able to manage that and get the job out and get it looking good, balance it up and sit there, chat about stuff. And yeah. Yeah, really good. So, so but Merps was was more editing and offline to start with, wasn't it? I think it was to start with. When I joined, they had put in a grading suite. Right, okay. And um, Adele Rafferty was actually yeah, the you know, in-house yeah. um, in-house colorist there. And I think she had been freelance to begin with or something and then had taken on a full-time position there. So there was her and she had an assistant, Rose, yeah. who's also a very celebrated colorist now. Um, and I joined after that department was already up and running and well-staffed and no one was going anywhere. So... Um, I was fortunate to have some interaction with Adele and Rose and sort of covered every now and then um, as a colorist assistant, but in no real um, meaningful way, I don't think. I got, I got a taste for it. And um, the first couple of grades that I did um, as a junior, I did at MERP um, or at, at Method in that grading suite. Um, I used to make music videos just so that I could grade them because no one would let me grade anything for them. Really? So, so you used to go and shoot your I own I used stuff. to go and shoot my own, yeah, yeah. We, um, oh. we even rented, um, Gearhead had a spot in a studio at Method. They had a green screen studio there and we just borrowed it for a weekend and my partner, Sam, he built sets and we wired in, you know, actual working lights into the sets and wallpapered them and... Um, it was cool. Uh, we, we got an Ari and we got a DP. Um, Shelley Farthing Door actually oh, shot yeah. shot one of my music videos. Even though it was, I feel almost embarrassed for these people to, to say that they had anything to do with it because they're so good. And, and that was it, like that work was so I really didn't know what I was doing. It was just so like it's fine, but it wasn't anything that they should be associated with now with their incredible backgrounds. But um, yeah, I, I just basically went, no one's going to let me do anything for them, so I'm just going to have to do it myself. Yeah. And um, yeah. made some music videos for local bands as well, just sort of run and gun style, which I was paid in tattoos with. You know, they didn't have any money, but like every tattoo I've got was a payment for a music video. Brilliant, man. <laughs> I, I got a skateboard once, oh, but I've cool. never had a tattoo. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you you've know. got to be pushy, haven't you? You're not going to get anywhere. You can't. I, I just wanted it so well, badly, Warren. I think you've got to be you got to be hungry, and you've got to get that work any way you can. You've got to hang out with those people, and I'll grade that. I'll grade that. There's no no nine to five jobs, and people say to me, "Oh, it's not happening for me. I'm not getting the well." Everybody started from the same spot, didn't we? All of us, DPs, direct wherever we are, we've all started from the day we were born. And some people get to there, some people get to the middle. But it's normally the ones who put in the hard work who are really keen and passionate about it to go further. No one's going to give you anything. Yeah. So on your journey, so then what happened? Oh, so what happened? Um, so I did, yeah, like I said, my first few few videos were sneaking into that grade suite, you know, 7 p.m. till midnight or, you know, on a weekend or something. Um, and what I what I found was that I wasn't going to get into the colour department in that context, so I needed to move companies. Yeah. 
So I approached a few places and the one that ended up sticking was the butchery and refinery yeah. in Melbourne. Um, so that doesn't exist anymore, but it was a really, really great place to work. I worked for the refinery side and it was very small finishing, boutique finishing studio. I worked under a flame artist, Eugene Richards. Uh, he was the owner, he was also the main artist. And I would set up grades for freelance colorists who were coming in and occasionally I'd do a retail spot or something. I might get to do that, but usually it was setting up grades for the really, really big commercials and really, really big agencies and artists and lots of cars and beer and, you know, really, really high end top of town stuff. And that was wonderful. And I also assisted Eugene um, at my very, very basic way um, in flame. I'm not a flame op. I'm not a flame artist. I, I understand enough about it to know that I know nothing. Um, but I would do conforms for him and I'd do his dubs and I'd do his tech checks and send everything to AdStream. So I was, I was a little bit of like the glue, I think, for that company. Like I could do a few things in different departments. So... That's how I earned my keep. Is that where Martin was freelancing? Yeah, Ma Martin Greer, yeah, that's yeah, he's where good. I met him. He's a good and lad. I was really, really lucky, I think, to get into that facility because I got exposure to these really great colorists like Marty, um, Fergus Halley, Vincent Taylor. Um, oh, there's a fellow from Scott, someone from Sydney. There's a few, a few names that I'm not remembering yeah. so well. Um, but it was great because even though I didn't have one single mentor the way that some other juniors had, I, I was able to see how multiple different people would approach things and they all had very different styles, but they were all generous with me and yeah. you know, they, they helped me a lot, um, watched my grades and let me know what they would have done differently and I was able to sit in quite often and watch what they were up to. and. Um, I got my first commercial grading experience there as well. Um, Vincent Taylor was actually stuck in New Zealand. He'd been over to do a job and wasn't able to get back to Australia and they had a commercial that he was booked on. Um, and I ended up doing that commercial and I could not get it approved. I couldn't get it approved. It was, I can't even remember the commercial, but it was like a 30 seconder. And I think I graded it for two days and I graded it every way from here to Sunday. Like, Anything you can think of, I threw at it and I just couldn't get it approved. And what I, what I found was that the director wasn't, he wasn't too concerned with what was on screen, but he needed the reassurance that he had his colorist and that he was in those capable hands and I could have done anything and it just wasn't going to get approved. Yeah. And it was trial by fire, really, yeah. um, because I got to the end of that and I didn't want to quit. <laughs> That's well. That's hard because some people would think that. I mean, that's really difficult for you first because you immediately go, "Oh, you know, it's what I've done. It's what I'm doing, and maybe I shouldn't be going down this road." Oh, absolutely. Oh, really, really <laughs> tough. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that some people do stop at that point. Um, and I think that there are definitely situations where it's kind of set up that you know you wait in the wings until you get your big break, and it's sink or swim. Um, luckily. It was a very supportive environment, and even though I couldn't get it approved, um, Vincent had by that point managed to make it back to Australia yeah. and yeah. took over the reins and got it approved in about 10 seconds. Yeah, I bet he didn't have nothing to it. <laughs> no, he did, he did a wonderful job as always. Um, uh, I remember just thinking, it's, it's not the work, it's the colourist. Yeah. 
Um, and I think that that was actually a really good lesson because it's true to this day that the relationships and the trust that people have in you can sometimes be more important than what's on screen because you need people to to feel safe coming to you with their ideas and to feel listened to and to have that you know relationship that that full yeah. package relationship with not just yeah. be the best gun out there because no. there's a hundred of us no, no no you get to work on that anyone junior coming up listen to that very important yeah to, to work on that as well yeah and fortunately the butchery and refinery supported me through that they didn't say oh you stuffed up you know they they were just like oh good for you you had to go and they gave me other opportunities yeah um, but an opportunity came up to be the in-house colorist at the post lounge in brisbane and I, I'd, I'd started, you know, putting my feelers out because I think that I kind of hit a ceiling there again of what I, where I could progress because their model was very much about freelancers and I'd become known as the junior. Yes. And I, I was really struggling to break out of that role. I was doing music videos in the evenings and short films on the weekends and I was the person that you went to when you had $2.50 and a great idea and wanted somebody to help you get your thing off the ground I wasn't being approached with commercials and films and things so trying to shift perceptions wasn't happening for me and I, I took that opportunity to come up to Brisbane and I moved my life up here I moved my partner up here um, fortunately his family was on the Gold Coast so it wasn't too big of an ask but he was born and bred in Melbourne so there was a lot of reluctance there to begin with. <laughs> and where did you grow up? Um, I kind of grew up in a lot of places so I started off my life in Eden in New South Wales which is coastal southern New South Wales. Yeah. Went to boarding school then for high school in Gippsland then I lived in Melbourne for 12 years. Right. Now I'm in Brisbane. Right. Okay. Took a little detour to Vancouver. Probably yeah. the place I've lived the longest is actually Melbourne, though. Okay, good. So I've been all over the place. But, yeah, I moved up to the Post Lounge as their colourist in-house, and I was there for a few years. And that's actually where I learnt that you could do both commercials yeah. and long form yeah. because that opportunity hadn't presented itself in Melbourne. I had done one feature film, actually, for a lecturer that had taught me at BCA. I graded his feature when he made it, which was awesome. But I approached it like a commercial. I didn't approach it like a feature um, because I didn't know how to approach anything like a feature. No, right? if you never have, no. Yeah, yeah. And so it took a very long time um, to grade that, that first feature and I didn't know how anyone could do it quicker. It took a very, very long time and I, I didn't construct looks in the way that I should have at all. I was just making up as I went. So when I got up here, I did learn a little bit more about how it's done you know, properly. And yeah. um, again, I got to assist some great freelance colorists as well um, because I was sort of probably, I was a colorist. I wasn't, I wasn't a junior colorist at that point. I had too many runs on the board and too much experience for that, but I certainly wasn't a senior colorist at that point in my career. And so when there were big films that would come into that facility, they would often come in with a, we want to grade this with you and we've chosen this freelance colorist who's going to work on the project or you know, perhaps the company would say, we've got these five people, pick one yeah, or yeah. what have you. Um, and they'd also just opened up a facility in Melbourne. So they were using freelancers down there and I was coming down to Melbourne quite often to provide okay. support down there. So uh, it was actually in that context that I was able to assist Dee McClelland. I assisted Olivia Fontenay on a couple of jobs, which was an amazing experience. Yeah. And I really, really like him. 
Um, I was familiar with his work through friends who'd worked with him, but it was great to, to get up close and personal and get to ask him a few questions. And he, I think, cemented um, the way that I work now is very much based on what I saw him doing. Yeah. Spoke to him about why he worked the way he did. And one of the things that he brought up was, you know, the more you do to the image, the more you potentially destroy it. Break it. So the less you do, the more targeted the adjustments that you do, the better it is yep. and coming from a commercials background where you're looking at what bells and whistles you can put on it it was such a breath of fresh air and it opened up my eyes to yep. what real film coloring was about yes yeah yep. in a way that hadn't happened before it was a real breakthrough moment for yep. me so there's a, there's a lot of important people in my career and yep. he's one of them yeah, for don't, sure don't trample on the image Absolutely. Uh, Reveal it. Yeah. You know. All right. This has been great. Let's give. Can we go for a little walk outside and sample the little local local scene? Let's do it. Brilliant. So the Color Two podcast can only be possible with the help of our wonderful iColor sponsors, who are Flanders Scientific, Dolby, LG, FX, PhD, Soho Net, Maxon, ISO, and Able Cine. Thanks to those guys. We're just leaving the main entrance. So the main, we just come down the stairs. There's a main type foyer here. With you walked past the guys' Emmys. Oh, yeah, I've just walked past some Emmys, yeah. Not mine, for the record. Yes. No, very nice. And now we're about to, uh, we're about to hit the heat. As I said earlier, it's been pretty, it's pretty hot. So like I said, we're about, I don't know, we're only about three k's away from the CBD, but because the river comes right through the centre of Brisbane, you normally got to get a ferry or you got to get on a bridge to get across. So though we're very close, it might be a little way just to get there. Um, if you were if you were driving or on a push bike. Hello. Hello. We're just hoping to have a drink, just sit down and. Oh, I'll have a tiger, please. One tiger. Yeah, I'm not a tiger for a while. Can I get a soda water, please? How lame am I? I haven't really been drinking since I had my son a couple of years ago. Oh, well, I'm not drinking in February, but we're still January, aren't we? <laughs> Just for, for another day. <laughs> We've literally come across the road. So this is like your local, really, isn't it? Really yeah. Really is your local. <laughs> We've managed to get a, a cold drink, which is colour to a podcast tradition, <laughs> that we do go somewhere and, and grab a cold drink, which is, which is great. I'm really pleased. This is good. This place changed a lot since I worked here, which was, oh, 20, started off 20 years ago, around here. So where did we get to? Post Lounge, started yeah, working there, yeah. so you started colouring more. Yeah, so I was doing a lot more colouring. I was doing a real mix of commercials and films, and I was popping down to Melbourne pretty frequently to grade down there. And um, after a few years there, I decided to make that shift to freelance, which is the scariest plunge that you can make but yeah I just thought it's time to see if I can do this standing on my own two feet you know because when you're an in-house person you're really fed by the facility you have to have a reputation as well and you have to you know build build your own brand in the same way as a freelancer but it's not do or die you know it's not it's not ride or die in the same way mm. so I, I wanted to give that a go and 
It was terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Um, so I, what year are we talking about? How long ago is this now? I want to say like 2017 I made that plunge. So about five years ago. Yeah, five, years yeah. Ago. five or six years. That sounds about right. Um, and I, I thought, gosh, I, I might never work again. So that's <laughs> how long had you been then working staff at the post lounge? So uh, around two years, so maybe got, a bit more. So you got, say, say three, so you got three years solid under your belt. You felt like you were yeah. there enough to then jump. Because people often say to me, well, you know, how long before you call yourself a senior? How oh, long before yeah. could I work freelance if I haven't had a hard going out freelance if you never really had a staff job. That's right. I, That's right. I think, but yeah. it's changed so much, hasn't it? I know. Well, I think it's, I'd love to talk about this because I think it's really difficult for people to get in now and to actually oh. learn what they need to know. And I'd love, I'd love to discuss that a bit more in detail and yeah. circle back to it. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, no, I remember I had four years yeah. experience before that. Can we get a photograph, please? Can we get that nice background? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, so yes, um, what 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 we need to remember is that I had you know four or five years under my belt before I moved to Brisbane. Yes. And even though I wasn't you know a in-house colorist during cheers. that time, cheers. Cheers. Lovely. Thanks for joining. Um, yeah, even though I wasn't colouring day in day out during that time, I'd put in a significant amount of time. Yeah. into colouring yeah. and I had many, many hours and many credits yeah. under okay. my belt. I'd graded a feature, I'd graded many, many music videos for yeah. some big artists as well. So I wasn't starting fresh. So where does Canada fit in? Well, Canada fits in. So I went freelance and I did that for a couple of years and I was shocked by how successful that was for me. Um, but I got this really random idea in my mind to start you know, putting my feelers out there and seeing what happened if I if I looked around internationally. Um, because what I didn't do was I didn't do a gap year or I didn't do that under 30s Commonwealth countries visa that a lot of people did. So I didn't have that overseas experience. And I felt like in Australia, we were doing things one way, but I really wanted to know how people were doing it. Sort of, I want to say almost like the Hollywood way. Yes. I just wanted to know what was the gold standard yeah. and just to sort of compare my processes to those gold standard processes. Um, and so when the opportunity came up to go over to Vancouver to work for DNEG, I took it. Um, I couldn't believe it actually when they offered me the job. I got to the second round of interviews and I said to my partner, oh my God, I think they're going to offer me a job. Like I had no, when I, when I put my hat in the ring, I had no thought that they would even consider for a second relocating a nobody from Brisbane did over Did you had a relationship or worked on a job through them? So did they know you? No. Or, really? No, it was an entirely, it was a LinkedIn job application, wow. which I put my hat in the ring for. And I had done a dailies colouring job on a film that was finished by Company 3 which I think was the reason that they looked at me. I think if I hadn't had that credit, they might not have, yeah. have thought of me for that role because yeah. even though I had a lot of films under my belt at that time, there, there's something to be said for working in that budget range. Once you've done it once, they'll trust you to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> 
So I uh, popped over to Vancouver and the first job that I was working on as a VFX colorist was Wonder Woman 1984. Oh. So that was amazing and I kept having to pinch myself seeing that footage on my screen. I was just like, I cannot believe this is me. I cannot believe this is my life. I can't believe what I'm seeing. Like, unbelievable. For, for people who don't know what a VFX colorist is, could you just step through that? What, what were you doing on a sort of daily basis? So I can tell you on a very basic level yeah, yeah. what it is. Um, one thing about DNEG is that they're a technology company. So a lot of what they do uses workflows that are entirely proprietary. So um, I probably can't go into a huge amount of detail, but basically there's a few different parts of the production where you might engage a colorist. So the first one is a dailies colorist where you're going out on set and then you might have a colorist for visual effects which is an entirely different role, but it's, it's kind of sandwiched in between your on-set colorist and your DI colorist. Yeah. So for a big visual effects film, it might be in VFX for a couple of years. And during that time, the look development is still happening. And the looks that we've created on set need to follow the shots along their journey and yeah. they, they need to inform everyone's decision-making process as they yeah. move through. So, Part of the job was to receive those grades from set, apply them to the shots that had visual effects added to them and make sure that everything looked correct. And um, there was a bit of color science involved in that. And there were color scientists who worked with the company setting up configs. And I had to sort of understand how all of that worked, but not necessarily implement it, thank yeah. God. Because <laughs> yeah. it's very complicated. <laughs> Say company three were finishing the movie yeah. and you were doing the visual effects. Were you grading the finished shots after they'd been comped and everything and then QCing and grading them and re-rendering before they went off to company three? So or... I was very much entrenched in the visual effects right. company. Yeah. So my role was within the comp department. Yeah. And that meant that I was very much at the service of the compositing supervisors and the visual effects supervisors yeah. as opposed to the colorists. Yeah. There is an element of crossover where you almost have to be like a conduit between the visual effects world and the DI world where, you know, they speak very different languages in some ways. They're working in different color spaces. They're, they're working with different code values and the philosophy can be quite different to the approach to, you know, what you see on screen and how you treat it. I think a visual effects artist and a colorist would have very different approaches to grading an image. Yes. How long were you there for? Uh, I was there for about 15 months in the end and I did intend to stay there longer, but it was the year before COVID was when I went over. So I got a full year before COVID happened and I was actually pregnant when COVID started. So I found it was really confronting going to the hospitals over there with everyone in their hazmat suits. Yes. And I kind of just wanted to go home and have yeah. my baby in a hospital where it was yeah. safe. Yeah, I can, I, can, I can understand that. I think that was a pretty good call. So then coming back, you had a better time off, obviously. You had your... Yeah, I got right back into it to begin with. So I came back seven months pregnant. I did my hotel quarantine. I graded a short film while I was in quarantine. And then I came back to Brizzy and I kind of got back into it for a month and I was really busy because everyone's like, where have you been? Yeah. And then I was like, oh, I'm off on maternity leave. See you later. <laughs> yeah, I had, had Matt leave. I think I took about five months off, um, six months maybe in total. And then I was back into it. Brilliant. Yeah. I had a little boy who really loved daycare. He was getting a lot out of daycare and very social little boy. So 
he was happy, I was happy, right back into the fray. Great. All right. And then Elvis came along. Elvis came how, along. How did that how did that come around? Because a lot of people say, how do you, you know, how do you get jobs and how do you get a certain level of job and so explain explain how, how that came about and how you got onto that show. So that was completely out of the blue. Completely out of the blue for me. And I I felt like I'd missed Elvis. I I you know, obviously didn't do the dailies for it because it was shooting as I was coming back from Vancouver and I was in hotel quarantine when the when the shoot started. So, you know, obviously that avenue wasn't wasn't open to me because so many of my friends were working on Elvis and I was like, oh, I'd really love to work on it with everyone. But I just, I really did think by the time it got to DI that, well, no one's spoken to me about it, so I've missed that one. Um, yeah. But then I got a call and I was asked if I wanted to colour it along with another colourist who uh, I absolutely adored. And I think it was because of him putting me forward that I got a look in. Um, so yeah, I, I coloured that with Kim Bioje. Uh, he's a lovely guy. Brilliant. And we had a wonderful time doing that and collaborating together. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. And tell me about, so the, one of the looks that really stands out is the the early tent look that's got that sort of desaturated look. How did that come about and how was that there from the beginning through dailies and everything? Is that A, a lot of it was there from the beginning and a lot of it was in production design and lighting. Yeah. It was a very integrated look the whole yeah. way through. There, yeah. I, I would say there's really nothing that the grey did that wasn't inherent in the plates. I mean, there were certainly looks for different scenes and there were references, yeah. really good historical references yes. because it was a biopic. Yeah. There were actual references for what the costume looked like and what the various yeah. locations looked like. And those references also were steeped in the era that they were produced. So, you know, photographic references from the 50s, 60s, 70s, they had qualities and characteristics about yes. them that were inherent in image making from those periods, you know, yeah. the kinds of film stocks that they used and the lenses that they used. And they were big references. And I believe they were references um, on set as well. They were references all the way through. And it was all very much um, layered, you know, with the production design and the costumes and the shooting and the angles. and everything that went into the image was referencing that. So it all came together, of course, in the grade. Um, so we were given a lot of photographic references that we were able to use as our, you know, touch points for various different eras as we moved through Elvis's life. And we made good use of them, I think. It was, it was really fun for me because I've got a background in contemporary arts. My yes. original degree was in contemporary arts and I yeah. did some painting and photography and things back then. So. For me, I love that textual analysis aspect of filmmaking. Um, I don't grade things from a really technical point of view, even though I've got a technical background. I'm always looking at culturally what is the significance of this arrangement of colours on screen. And it was fun to sort of go, it wasn't nostalgic, but it felt right for the, for the era. So um, long story short, that those early scenes were based on references that yes. we were given, photographic yeah. references, but also, you know, you wouldn't have gotten those colours if the characters weren't wearing those costumes yeah. that they were wearing. Yeah. There was pink, yellow, yes. baby blue. You know, if, if those weren't there and lit yeah. nicely and yeah. the tent was that great yellowy colour to it, you yes. know, it wasn't like a white 
clean, brand new tent that we were keying some yellow into, yeah. you know, we were actually just revealing the intention of how it was shot. And I think I think it was Adrian Hauser on Gatsby said he spent a lot of time with Catherine Catherine Martin in the grading suite yes. more so than Baz Luhrmann was that the case? I mean, I definitely spent a lot of time with with um, Catherine. Yeah. She's she's an incredible person to work with. Yeah. Um, as is Baz. You know, I, I feel that I, I got probably more time with Catherine than Baz as well. Um, yeah. Absolutely, um, because she has that production design eye. And she has been there and seen the way these things should look in reality. And I think that in the case of Elvis, she'd actually seen historically some of these costumes as well. She knew how they should be in a, in a very intimate way. Um, so yeah, definitely spent a lot of time with her analyzing the frame and she would find things that were so fine detailed. She has such a brilliant eye, such an eagle eye. Um, it was an absolute learning experience to, to see how she would approach the grade, for sure. Yeah. Um, loved every second working with her. Yeah. And uh, it's great to see that um, Mandy Walker's up for an uh, Academy Award for the movie coming up very soon. Absolutely. What a phenomenal honour. Oh, it's great. I worked with her 20 years ago on a, a crazy uh, commercial for the Treasury Casino. Oh. <laughs> and so... Uh, Man, that made, I think Elvis might have had a slightly more budget than the Treasury Casino. <laughs> uh, but anyway, no, she's done really great. It's really good to see it. Well, Best of luck for her for that. Absolutely. So, no, it's a great looking movie. Great experience. Out of interest, how long were you on it doing final colour? Was, or was it stop start a bit for visual effects or things? Or could you put a timestamp on it? Um, I was on it for. I would say four to five months on that film. I didn't expect to be on it for four to five months. Um, but yep, that's that's how long it ended up being, which was yeah. quite an experience for me. Like aside from my time at DNEG, I'd never worked on a single production for that long. And I'd never worked on a single production for that long as a final colorist. No. So it was, it was, it was great. I, I think we said late, like earlier that you know, you get to the end of a 10-day grade and you wish you had one more day. Yeah. Four to five months, and I still wish I had one more day. Right. I'm not going to lie. And that was through the post lounge, wasn't it? That's correct, yeah. yeah. Right. So, so yeah, let's get hats off to them. It's a big coup, and it's a, it's a great-looking movie, so best of luck for them. Absolutely, yeah. They, they were really great to work with on that, actually, and they had um, many different facilities that were at the service of that film, not just the one. So yeah. we spent time in the Gold Coast, we spent time in Brisbane, and we also spent time in Sydney. And the S Sydney facility, if you get a chance to go down and check it out, is a really, really great facility. Yeah. It's beautiful. No. Their screening room in there is lovely. No, it's good to know. Yeah. So you uh, you touched on earlier, um, and I think it was when we were talking about how you can get mentoring and how this is something that's very hard today to actually get that or to even think about going freelance when you've never had a staff job so what are your what are your thoughts on that and is that just the norm now for yeah I, I spend a lot of time thinking about this because of how difficult it was for me to get my foot in and at the time I felt very strongly that I, I really wish that there had been a more straightforward career path for me and it's really tragic, I think, to see that it's gotten worse because those kinds, there were only a couple of jobs out there for people to have mentorship. Yeah. Now there are none. 
Not you know, really. those those facility roles where you had a senior colourist who was able to pull in enough work to create space for somebody to really sit with them for many years and watch and learn and gradually dip their toe in and become that colourist, they don't exist anymore. The people who are doing the conforming are also doing so many other jobs um, yeah. just due to budget restraints yeah. um, that... I, I don't I don't see a path, you know, if you can if you can get into a facility and be conforming, there's not necessarily a path there from conforming to grading. You know, because no. you know, during the grade itself you might be conforming and then told the, the grade's on now, out of the room, off you rendering. go. Yeah. Yeah. You'd think if you could I mean it's so hard to even get a job in a facility, you might be in the right place, but like you say, to actually get time to sit in the room your jobs are normally shorter now, aren't they? Your average commercial grade times come right down. To actually get a chance to sit in there like like you and I did, and even more so probably when I I came up, it's just it's, it's very hard. Yeah. I mean, my, my start was very patchworked. You know, there were definitely times when I had to just try it out and live or die. You know, I think there are people out there who still associate me with some pretty poor grades that I did as I was learning. And that's, that's really hard to shake. Mm. So to, to have a situation where you've got people who are really protected as they learn from, because like your brand is only as good as the work that you've output and people remember, oh yeah, she did that rotten thing for me. It was 10 years ago, but you know, still, you know, they, they assume you haven't learned anything in the meantime, right? <laughs> um, I don't know what the solution is, but I think that we need to find one because you don't, you, you can't expect people to know how to do things the right way. You can't expect people to just magically understand these processes without an apprenticeship model and without no. a traineeship no. available. And I don't know if that's something that the screen bodies need to look into yeah. or yeah. even the like, the apprent like literally the apprenticeships need to yeah. look into because... Yeah. I actually looked into whether or not there was any apprenticeship funding to bring on somebody in yeah. that no, apprenticeship model. And there, and there no, is. and I think that's where everyone's fighting for a bit of government money, aren't they? But they're very keen to bring these productions here and we're going to open a studio there and there's going to be a studio. Where are we going to get the talent for these studios? And it's we not something you learn in... We can't just magic these no. people up. We're going to get one chance to bring these productions in and we all know they remember the bad things more than they do remember the good things. Absolutely. So I think there does need to be something, some sort of grant that you can apply for to come on and, you know, some longer structure training. I um, think training and getting into the film schools, more and more that's happening, getting yeah. into the film schools, showing people that it's possible. Yeah. But you don't learn it in a fortnight, no. you don't learn no. it in a year. No. I think it takes years yeah um, some people start off extremely talented but even still you have to be exposed to it and no job's the same like no. every single time it's new there's yeah. something new to it yeah. so you just have to like literally get that experience there's no other there's no other way to do it yeah. I, I don't know what the solution is but we need a solution because we're, we're losing skills and I'm having grades set up by people who are very nervous because they feel out of their depth sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes. And I feel for those people because they're being asked to do a very technical process without the resources yes. required. Yeah. It's not that they're no good, it's yeah. that they haven't been taught. Yeah, no, I'm with you.
So uh, we're going to wrap it up, and I ask this, this question to everybody. What is your colour highlight and say your colour low light? Did you ever have the, ever the nightmare session where someone stormed out or you thought, crikey, that was a disaster? Or maybe not. Or maybe you touched on it was that first job, which I think could it have been. Was. I think that well, was that my colour disaster. That would have been a really tough one to take. So we'll take that one. So yeah. what would you say your highlight? It could be a little short film that you're just so proud of. It could be anything. It could be anything you've done where you thought that was great. I just, that's the benchmark. That's where I am. Jeez, that's tricky. Um, color. So okay, yeah, we've got we've got the nightmare. Um, yes. So I, I've probably got two highlights, yes. and they're very obvious. Yes. Working on Elvis. Yes. In a session, having Baz Luhrmann say, wow, that looks amazing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, totally. that, I've never felt so proud, no. honestly, to have somebody that is that well respected yeah, and, has, and has been there and seen as much as he has to, to appreciate working with little old me, little old nobody me. That's, um, that definitely made it for me. And, um, I think the other the other highlight I, I I can't pinpoint a single moment, but I worked on June on the first June film, the um, the the Maneuve June. Um, I worked on that for around a year while I was at DNEG as a VFX colorist. I wasn't the only VFX colorist on it, but yeah. the site that I was working from led the VFX. And yeah. while I was there, I got to look at a lot of the plates and got to got to work a lot on that film and. I just enjoyed every second of that. You know, the way it was shot, the onset grades, everything about it was just unbelievable. Yeah, there's something special about being part of a big team on something like that as well. I think that's what I loved the most about my time yeah. at DNEG was that I was part of a big Good team. There were several other colorists. There was an yeah. assistant colorist I was working with. There were a couple of color scientists. and. Being part of the comp team, I mean, the comp team is thousands of people and the company as a whole, I think there's like 4,000 people working at DNEG, like, and they have sites in Mumbai, Chennai, Vancouver, Montreal, oh, London. Yeah. They're just opening up in Sydney now. Are they? Yeah, which is amazing. So I think now they'll be 24 seven operation. I don't think there's gonna be a moment ever that there's not somebody who's no. in the nine to five they're, time zone for them. And being yeah. a tech company, they have solutions that are really great for productivity and workflow. So working in a team like that and being part of something that large is not something that I'd experienced before. Um, it, was, it was something else. And every time I sat in a meeting on that film and listened to the comp suits and the BFX suits talk about what they were doing, my jaw was just on the ground. I was like a little country bumpkin seeing behind the curtain, you know, for the first time going, oh my goodness, this is how it's done. Wow. You know, I was never the smartest person in the room, not once. There was no danger of that. Hey, man. Hey, Kelly, it's been great. I tell you, no more little old me sitting there in front of Baz Luhrmann. Confidence without arrogance is what you need, yes? Being confident about your own abilities, and you've got it. Now, listen, after this podcast, mate, your phone's been ringing hot, right? You have LA, you could be off there. Tell Sam, you might have to move again. <laughs> Guaranteed, we get at least eight listeners to this show. 
<laughs> Thanks. Give me and a cheers. Thanks for Thank coming you so on. Much. It's, it's been great fun. Lovely talking. It's a shop. great conversation. It's very indulgent. Cheers, Kelly. <laughs>